Good morning. As you can see, I'm not with you live this morning. Unfortunately, Sherry tested positive for COVID, and, and I didn't want to miss another Sunday, so here I am with you this way. Well, let me encourage you to hold up your Bible with me and repeat after me. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. There was a movie that came out in 2013 that, to be honest with you, I haven't seen it, and I wouldn't encourage you to watch it. I would consider it a vile, sacrilegious movie, and yet I am afraid that it portrays the way many people in our world look at those of us who believe what the Bible teaches about the end time. The movie is called This Is The End. It was a comedy that starred Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill, and it made fun of the rapture and the judgment that is to follow. Now, tragically, there are many people in our world today who think that the end of time is a joke, that everything is going to work out in the end. This week, I got my copy of the AARP magazine. You know, the magazine for old people. And one of the articles in the magazine was world ending, question mark, nope, just a scam. Now I know this article was all about protecting people from fraud, but the problem is the people of this world think everything is going to be okay and the end of the world isn't coming. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And so this morning, as we wrap up the first chapter of Revelation, the chapter that introduces the book of Revelation, I want us to see four more truths as we prepare for the end. Now here's truth number one. Suffering is to be expected as a follower of Jesus. Listen to what it says in verse 9. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering, and in God's kingdom, and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Now, there are two important words in this verse. The first word is that word suffering. John is now an old man. He had faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for, for over 60 years. All the other disciples had already been put to death for their faith. But now John is exiled on the island of Patmos. Now Patmos was this penal colony located in the Aegean Sea that was only about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. On that barren island, John's life consisted of beatings, insufficient food, sleeping on a rocky bed at night, and working during the day. And notice why he was there. He was there because of preaching the Word of God and for telling others about Jesus. And John was not alone. Notice what he said. I am your brother and companion in suffering. It wasn't just John who was suffering. They all were. 
You see, serving Christ was not and will never be easy. It is costly. John's reward for his faithfulness was imprisonment on a barren, lonely island. And we need to understand that if we truly get serious about sharing our faith, it will be costly for us as well. Jesus said this in John 16. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 14, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And later on in 2 Timothy 3, he said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The persecution of the church began in Acts 8 and continues to this day. There were godless forces at work trying to destroy the message of Jesus and those godless forces are still at work today. And that takes us to the second word that's important here. And that's the word kingdom. You see, the Bible tells us that we are part of God's kingdom. We are suffering because of God's kingdom. We must never forget that we are citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. And God's kingdom cannot peacefully coexist with the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world will always be seeking to destroy God's kingdom. And God's kingdom will always be seeking to overcome the kingdom of this world. That's why there will be suffering until Jesus comes back. It is estimated that more Christians are killed for their faith today than at any other time in the history of the world. According to some reports, between seven and 8,000 Christians are martyred worldwide each year. And that is a conservative estimate. In North Korea, Christianity is illegal and there are approximately 50,000 Christians that are in labor camps today. The government of Iran monitors Christian church services and they arrest new converts. At least eight states in India have passed anti-conversion laws which are used to disrupt church services, force Christians from their homes, destroy church buildings, and even kill pastors. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he said, if you are suffering as a Christian, and because you are a Christian, it is one of the surest proofs you can ever have of the fact that you are a child of God. And so let me ask you a question. Are you ready? Are you willing to suffer for sharing your faith? Let me say, if you don't get in the habit now, when it gets difficult, you won't be ready. Now here's the second truth. We don't worship because of what we are experiencing, but rather because of who Jesus is. And listen to what it says in verses 10 and 11. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, the Lord's Day refers to Sunday. This is the day that the New Testament church began to meet together to worship, to celebrate the Lord's victory over sin and death. And John was worshiping on Sunday, praising his Savior when he had this vision and encounter with the Lord. He may have been alone on a barren island, 
but he still had church. You see, John didn't allow his circumstances or his location to keep him from worship. Someone said recently, hunters hunt, runners run, shoppers shop, workers work, and worshipers worship. If we know Jesus, we will worship Jesus. I saw a post a little over a week ago that had a picture of a crowded airplane and, and then almost an empty church building. And then it said this. It said, they are not afraid to go to work. They are not afraid to go to a restaurant. They are not afraid to go shopping. They are not afraid to go to the gym. They are not afraid to go to the beach. They are not afraid to go on trips. But they are afraid to go to church. The problem has never been the church. The problem has always been the heart that is far from God. And then the person said this, Beloved in Jesus Christ, Jesus is coming very soon. It's time to return to Christ. I want you to listen very carefully. It's not the time to stay home or cut back on your attendance in corporate worship. It's a matter to get, excuse me, it's a time to get more involved than ever before. But notice, not only was it the Lord's day, but we are told that John was in the spirit. You see, you don't have to let your situation define you or be descriptive of who you are. In spite of all that John was experiencing, he was worshiping in the spirit. Now, John's experience of being in the Spirit is both unusual in its scope, and yet it should be usual in its inspection. Jesus told us that, that true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In Acts 2, we read the first filling of the believers with, with God's Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we are told that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Christ. You see, the moment we truly repent of our sins, place our faith in Jesus, and surrender to Him as the Lord of our life, we are filled with His Spirit. Unfortunately, we do not remain filled with His Spirit. That does not mean that, that God's Spirit is not in us, but what it does mean is that we are not filled, we are not controlled we're not walking in the spirit that's why the apostle paul commanded us in ephesians 5 to be filled with the spirit now why is it that many believers today are not filled with the spirit i believe that there are two basic reasons the first is we have undealt with sin in our lives the bible makes it clear that unconfessed unrepented of sin will hinder our relationship with god now, what does this have to do with God's filling? You see, if sin is filling a part of my life, then God's Spirit cannot fill me completely. The second reason I believe that many are not filled with the Spirit today is because we're not willing to surrender completely, to yield completely to God. Paul said this, he said, I beseech you, brothers, because of God's mercy, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. One of our hymns of the faith says, wherever he leads, I'll go. But I'm afraid that many of us sing wherever he leads, I'll go as long as 
I don't have to give up my comfort, my lifestyle, my desires, my wants, my dreams. The bottom line is this. If you want to enhance your worship life and and experience deeper intimacy with God where he communicates with you on a more personal, intimate level, you must deal with your sin and surrender all to him. Then you will be in the Spirit. And then you will be in that place where you can experience God more fully and completely. And like John did, you can have an encounter with God. And that leads me to the third truth. And that is this. Jesus is often encountered in the midst of the difficulties of life. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 12. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice, it thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in, in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Now, in a moment, we will talk about those lampstands and stars. But for now, I want us to focus on the person Jesus saw, or John saw, and that is Jesus, the glorified Lord. It had been over 60 years since John had seen Jesus, but he had never seen Jesus quite like this, and yet he knew who Jesus was. The closest thing that we have a description of the earthly Jesus is, is found in Isaiah 53 too. Isaiah 53 too tells us that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's all we're told about how he looked here on earth. But we are told what Jesus looked like in his glorified, exalted state. As a matter of fact, three times in Revelation, in chapter 1, chapter 5, and chapter 19, we are given a picture of the glorified, exalted Christ. Now understand, these pictures are never intended to be literal, but descriptive. Because to be honest, it would be next to impossible to describe fully the majesty and the splendor of the glorified Lord. But John did his best trying to describe what he saw. He first of all said that he was like a son of man. This is clearly a reference to the book of Daniel when Daniel had a vision of Jesus in Daniel 7 verse 13. The son of man is the Old Testament term that was used to describe the Messiah that was to come. The term son of man is used 85 times in the gospels Jesus used it 83 times to describe himself though we must always remember the divinity the divinity of Jesus we must never forget the humanity of Jesus Jesus was not a man before his incarnation he was God and he was God alone but he was born a man he lived a man 
He died a man. He was raised a man. And now and forevermore, he is a man, a glorified man. You see, Jesus took on human flesh so that one day we could experience more than this human flesh. Then he told us that he was clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. These are the garments of the high priest in the Bible. And Jesus is our great high priest who was able to save us once and forever, who was able to intercede with God on our behalf, who has been given the highest place of honor in heaven forever, who offered himself as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, and who is able to meet our any and every need. Next, we are told his head and his hair were white like wool and as white as snow. Now, this probably refers to two things. First, it shows us that Jesus is the eternal, all-knowing, ancient of days that Daniel told us about in his book. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, he says, And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair on his head was as white as wool. But this white also symbolizes the absolute purity of Jesus. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in every way, and yet he was without sin. Then we are told that his eyes were like flames of fire. The Greek literally says his eyes shot fire. The same description is found in Revelation 19 verse 12, where we're told his eyes are blazing like fire, and on his head are many crowns. Now fire, when it is hot enough, can burn through the heart of the toughest wood. It can melt the strongest steel. And the fire that comes from his eyes can go deep within you and see you at your very core. You may be able to hide things from your spouse, from your friends, from your neighbors, from your children, from your parents, from your bosses, but you can't hide anything from God. Luke chapter 8, verse 17 says, For there is nothing that will not be disclosed, for nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Jesus is able to see everything, not just what you do, but he is even able to see the things that are within your heart. And then in verse 15, it says, His feet were like polished bronze, refined in the furnace. Now, brass or, or bronze is consistently a symbol of two things in Scripture. Judgment and deliverance. It is the material from which the altar was made where sins were judged. And it was a brass serpent that was the symbol of God's deliverance and judgment. You see, God is a God who both delivers us and judges us. Jesus came as Savior the first time, but he is coming as judge the next time. We like to picture Jesus as meek and mild, but he is not only the Lamb of God, he is the Lion of Judah. Then in verse 15, we're also told that his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Have you ever been to an ocean, a waterfall, uh, where, where the sound is so overwhelming that it deadens all other sounds? You can't hear anything else. Today... We can ignore Jesus. We can reject Jesus. But there is coming a day that when he speaks, 
He will speak with such power and authority that he must be heard. And then in verse 16, we are told a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Nothing can stand before the word of God. It is God's primary weapon against his enemies. And a sword can either save us or slay us depending on how we react to that sword, the word of God. The Bible says that the word is life to those who receive it, but it's death to those who refuse it. Unfortunately, we're living in a day and age where many people take the word of God lightly. Then we are told his face was like the sun. This tells us about the glory of Jesus. You can't look directly into the light of the sun. Our natural eyes cannot stand the brilliance of the sun. But the brilliance of the sun doesn't compare to the brilliance of the Son of God. Saul discovered this when he was on the road to Damascus. The, the inner circle of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, got a glimpse of this when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses experienced this when, when he was on Mount Sinai. Now notice what happened when John saw the glorified Lord. It says that John fell at the Lord's feet as, as if he were dead. Now why did he do that? Because when we come face to face with the Lord's holiness and our sinfulness, it will produce such an awe and a fear that we will fall down as if we were dead. There are times that our worship is fun and, and it's joyful. But there are other times that we can do nothing but simply weep in his presence. I've got to admit that, that I am concerned about the casualness that, that many people in our culture today have with God. And I'm not talking about worship styles, but rather I'm talking about the inner attitude of our heart when we're approaching God. But notice this passage doesn't stop with John falling on his face as if he were dead. Notice what Jesus did. He picked him up and comforted him. He said, do not be afraid. You see, when we come humbly before the Lord, he is not only willing, he is wanting to lift us up, to clean us off, and bring us joy. Now notice the words of comfort that Jesus gave. I am the first and the last, the living one. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has authority over the living and the dead. We have nothing to fear because Jesus is Lord over everything. You see, when you face the difficulties of life, don't immediately try to find a way out. Because if you're going to do, you're going to miss out. Instead, look up and listen. And maybe you will experience a fresh encounter with God. And that takes me to the final truth we see in chapter 1. And that is God's purpose in this book is not to conceal but to reveal. God wants us to know what the future holds so that we can be prepared for the future. Listen to what he says in verses 19 and 20. 
Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, the New Living Translation, which I typically read from, is, is not a good translation of verse 19. The New American Standard is a much better translation. So I want to read verse 19 from there. It says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, in verse 19, John gives us the outline of the book of Revelation. Some have called this the golden key to the book of Revelation. He first of all tells John to write down what you've seen. In, in other words, Jesus is saying, write down what you've just seen, this vision of me that you have seen. Then he says, write down what is now. This refers to the historical events that were taking place in John's day to our present day. You see, this part of the book deals with seven specific churches located in Asia Minor, but it also deals with the church age as a whole. John has a specific message, or Jesus has a specific message for each church, and he has a specific message for us today. Finally, Jesus says, write down what will take place later. Beginning in chapter 4, we are taken with John into the future and we see events that will take place in the future as we know it. Now you may say, how do we know that? How do we know that what is happening in chapter 4 and following are future events? Well, the reason we know that is because Jesus speaks of coming back to earth. He speaks of Satan being defeated, the old heaven and the new earth being replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. He speaks of the dwelling place of God coming down with man. Now, regardless of your biblical interpretation, you can't interpret those things as already happened. They haven't happened yet in any way, shape, or form. So John tells us what he sees on the island of Patmos. What is happening now in the churches and what will happen one day in the future. Now in verse 20, Jesus gives us an explanation of some of what he saw. He first reveals the mystery of the stars. He tells us that these stars represent the angels of the seven churches. Now the Greek word for angel is angelos or messenger. Sometimes in scripture it refers to a heavenly messenger, an angel. But there are other times that it refers to a human messenger or a pastor. Now, there are some that believe that this is referring to angels who are guardians of individuals and guardians of churches. Uh, there's one verse that clearly speaks of this. In Hebrews 1.14, it says, um, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? With all the enemies that we have as followers of Jesus today, with all the enemies that the church has today, isn't it comforting to know? that there are angels who are working for us and ministering to us. But there is another option to how to interpret this word, and that is spiritual leader or pastor. Many people believe that this word angelos is referring to the pastors of the church, and, and it seems like this makes more sense because notice the, 
the letters in chapter 2 and 3 are written to the angels or the messengers or the pastors to these churches. Pastors are the ones who are called to be the messengers of God's word to God's people. It's not the pastor's job to share popular truth. It's the pastor's job to share timeless truth, the timeless truth of God's word. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. Next, he reveals the mystery of the lampstands. We're told the lampstands represent the, the seven churches. Now, it's no accident that, that there are seven churches. And there's no accident that he calls them lampstands. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. And then he said in Matthew 14, we are the light of the world. You see, the church is called to reflect or reveal the light of Jesus like a city set on a hill. And now notice what it says in verses 12 and 13 if you go back. Jesus is in the midst of the churches. This reminds us that where two or more are gathered, he is in the midst with them. Aren't you glad that Jesus is with us? That he'll never leave us. He will never forsake us regardless of how bad it gets. Now as we think about these seven churches, we need to ask ourselves, why did Jesus address these seven particular churches? Why not the church at Rome or the church at Corinth or Philippi or Jerusalem? I believe the reason is because these are seven representative churches. The characteristics of these churches are, are found in churches today. We see that there are some churches today who struggle with the same problems, face the same obstacles, have the same opportunities as these churches. And so as we look at these churches, we need to ask ourselves, where do we fit in? What do we look like? But I believe there's a second reason that, that Jesus used these seven churches. I believe that God in his sovereignty, God in his providence, is giving us a picture of the church age. You see, from Genesis chapter 12 to Acts chapter 1, Israel was the focus. Israel was used by God in God's redemptive plan. But in Acts chapter 2, all of that changed. And the focus was now the church. And the church became the focus of God's redemptive plan. But the Bible makes it very clear that God is not through with Israel. And I believe there is coming a day when God is going to remove the church. And he is going to again use Israel as the redemptive tool for those who are being saved. Now, next week we're going to talk a little about this and, and explain how these churches are representative of church age. It's leading up to the very rapture of the church. But here's what I want you to know for sure. All the mysteries of God's word will be revealed in due time. All the mysteries of God's word will be revealed in due time. And I'm afraid that we have made revelation too much of a mystery today. Because the Bible makes it clear that God has given us this word for our understanding 
to prepare us for the future that is to come. But understand, regardless of what you believe about the end, Jesus is coming. And His coming is imminent. And you need to be ready. And even if something happens to you before then, you're going to one day stand before Jesus. And so surrendering your life to Jesus is the most important decision you can ever make. And so are you ready to stand before Jesus? Because the Bible makes it clear that one day we will. And so I'm going to ask you right now to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. With your head bowed and with your eyes closed, I want you to ask yourself an honest question. Do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm ready to stand before God? Do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, dear friend, if you don't know that for certain, then I beg you today to humble yourself and repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus, and surrender your life to Him. If that's what you would like to do, you can do that right now by praying this prayer with all of your heart. Just repeat these words to Him. Dear God, I humbly come to you today acknowledging that I am a sinner. I'm tired of living in rebellion against you. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave defeating sin and death. And right here, I'm turning from sin. I'm trusting you to save me. And I'm surrendering my life to your control. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Now look at me.